Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week, Afghanistan's president insists his country is not about to fall to the Taliban. This is not Vietnam. This is not a government that is collapsing. But as the US reviews its withdrawal plans, will the West ever find a way to leave? The integrated review is on the way and there's pressure on all sides as lobbying reaches fever pitch. The ability for us to speak with authority on the international stage comes from our hard power. You diminish that continuously, eventually we'll be overtaken and our voice will be diminished as well. And we report on the British troops preparing to join the most dangerous UN mission in the world. It's very clear what we're there to do. We're not there to kind of bring about substantial change. We're there for peacekeeping to support the locals. Almost 20 years after international forces first went into Afghanistan, you could be forgiven for wondering if they'll ever be able to get out. The 1st of May was meant to be the deadline for withdrawal under the terms of a deal agreed between the US and the Taliban. But now, after a surge in violence, that date's under review. While civilian casualties fell in Afghanistan across the whole of 2020, there was a sharp rise in violence in the final months of the year as peace talks continued. Well, now Afghanistan's president says there's a window of opportunity to speed up the peace process, with NATO delaying that final decision on when to withdraw. Paul Osborne has more. What in 2021 counts as a good exit from Afghanistan? The strategic goals of the international coalition have constantly shifted from counterterrorism to nation-building. And while the Taliban is resurgent, the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, says in many ways they failed. They've not been able to achieve any of their two aims for the last six years, either to bring the government down, finish our security forces, or second, divide Afghanistan geography into two. But neither has Afghanistan's government been able to exert control across the country. Despite this, Mr Ghani says it's the Taliban that must make a decision. It is time that Taliban and their supporters show the same will for seeking peace as they've demonstrated in seeking conflict. The fear is that with peace talks in Qatar still stalled, the withdrawal of remaining foreign troops now could be the trigger for the Taliban to try to overrun major cities. Reports from Washington say that President Biden is haunted by this idea of the Taliban taking Kabul, with remaining officials airlifted out in scenes reminiscent of the end of the Vietnam War. The US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin is reviewing the planned withdrawal. We are committed to a responsible and sustainable end to this war while preventing Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for terrorist groups and, and that, that threaten the interests of the United States and our allies and ensuring a just and durable end to the long-running conflict. While no decision's been taken, the talk is of an extension of a few months in the hope that talks between Mr Ghani's government and the Taliban can finally make progress. I told our allies that no matter what the outcome of our review, the United States will not undertake a hasty or disorderly withdrawal from Afghanistan that puts their forces or the alliance's reputation at risk. At the same time, the White House is acutely aware that American voters are tired of the war in Afghanistan. But is America, and others in the coalition that went in 20 years ago, really willing to leave the country's population to just sort things out on their own? My instinct 
from a moral perspective is that those millions of Afghans who do not want to be ruled by the Taliban should continue to be helped. Former Chief of the Defence Staff General Lord Richards says if foreign troops are going to stay longer, they need to shift the balance in the country. So a negotiated settlement is the only option. We could hunker down and defend ourselves, but there's no point doing that if we don't in the process gain some sort of military ascendancy uh, to to persuade the Taliban to come back to the table. And that would require not a reduction as planned, but actually an increase in resources. And I I have to say, I'm sceptical that governments in the West have really taken this on board. That wouldn't necessarily, he says, mean sending more troops, just devoting more attention. We should call the Taliban's bluff, but have to incentivize them more, not militarily, not apply more military sticks, but more economic and political incentives. And we have to incentivize the Afghan government more. This will require money, I suspect, uh, and political initiative, and not necessarily, if we get the formula right, more troops. But what about Afghanistan's president? Is Ashraf Ghani himself an obstacle to peace? What if a deal hinges on him standing down? The Republic is a system that runs by the will of the people. The source of legitimacy of the next government has to be absolutely clear. It has to be the will of people of Afghanistan. He insists that even if foreign forces leave, his country will not fall to the militants. This is not Vietnam. This is not a government that is collapsing. But neither is it the functioning democracy the West wanted to see. 20 years on, it's still not clear how the US, Britain and others can finally end their involvement in Afghanistan. Paul Osborne reporting there. Well, Sir William Patey was Britain's ambassador in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2012, and he joins me now. Uh, Sir William, it's hard to see how the West can pull out of Afghanistan given the current surge in violence, but it's also hard to see any big idea that would decisively shift the situation there. Well, I think what needs to happen is the flawed Doha agreement needs to include a provision for the, the commitment from the Taliban to reach a political settlement with the Afghan government. The, the Doha agreement was about American troops withdrawing uh, and was very light on the conditions for intra-Afghan talks. So I think, uh, you know, the Trump administration was focused on, a, you know, an agenda-based withdrawal. Uh, and it looks like the Biden administration is, is going to be on a condition-based withdrawal. So, I mean, I think I agree with uh, Lord Richards that we need to um, support the Afghan government. Uh, I don't think we should put necessarily put a short timescale on it. American troops are still in Germany 70 years after the war. There's no reason why we shouldn't be continuing to support the Afghans over a long period. State building goes over decades, not uh, uh, not just years. Yeah, and that, that mentioned by Lord Richards of economic and political incentives to be offered to the Taliban, what could be offered? Well, the offer is that eventually foreign troops will withdraw when there is a democratic transition in uh, in Afghanistan. I don't think in a free and democratic election the Taliban would win power in Kabul. They would win seats. They would win representation. They would be part of a power-sharing uh, government, but they wouldn't be able to t- take over. And their current strategy seems to be get the foreign troops out, 
weaken the Afghan government and eventually take over militarily. That position has to change. Mm, well, also joining me today is Professor of Defence Studies, Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, what does the US want? A democratic, peaceful Afghanistan or one that doesn't host militants who threaten the US? Well, ultimately, it, it wants a little bit of both. But it, if essentially, it needs a, a, an Afghanistan that doesn't provide a home for international terrorists. That was what this was all about. But of course, after all this time, it can't leave Afghanistan without some elements of modernized democratic government where the rights of, of girls to go to school, for instance, and the infrastructure are, are improved. So there has to be a, a, at least a minimum level of that for the United States to feel that it's done a, as good a job as it can. Uh, Joe Biden's problem is that the America voters are sick of the war and want out, but he doesn't want to be blamed for some kind of military humiliation, does he? No, that's right. And uh, you know, the international forces there, they, they should concentrate, as they have done, on training, training the Afghan forces and providing backup providing the air cover and the intelligence and in some cases some cases the special forces but the bigger game to play of course is the politics of Pakistan and India and China because all the Afghans know that Western powers will turn away from Afghanistan but they also know that the ultimate determinants of their future will lie in Pakistan India and China and the consistency that President Biden calls for, as much as anything, is consistency in Western policy towards those three big powers, because Pakistan is still intrinsic to Taliban power inside Afghanistan. And that's because of what the, the way they interpret India's ambitions. And China, of course, is the great strategic gainer, the, the great winner from the Afghan war. So it's those three other outside powers that will ultimately determine what sort of country I think Afghanistan is likely to be. We have to convince the Taliban, I agree with Michael, that it's about Pakistan is key to this, because without Pakistan's support, uh, the Taliban wouldn't be able to have the degree of success they're, they're having. But we should also recognise that the Taliban have not yet lived up to the, even their part of what is a limited agreement, the Doha Agreement. Uh, Ed Fitton Brown, who's the former British diplomat, who's the UN coordinator on Islamic State Al-Qaeda and the Taliban monitoring team, he's quite clear that the Taliban have not broken their links with Al-Qaeda and they're still hev heavily embedded. So, you know, Taliban um, bona fides here are in, in question. So as, as long as that is the case... I think the international community have both a moral and a security obligation to support the Afghan government, but not fight the fight for them. Well, while NATO has delayed a final decision on Afghanistan, it has committed an extra 3,500 personnel to the training mission in Iraq, a figure that will include some additional British troops. As William, it's 30 years this weekend since the end of the first Gulf War, and here's another reminder of how hard it is to disengage from a country once you intervene militarily. I think we were under some form of illusion that state building was was easy and could you know could be done quickly. State building takes decades, uh, um, you know, and we should think in decades. And I think uh, uh, I, I think this NATO decision also has some impact on America's staying power in in Iraq and Afghanistan. If NATO is willing to take up more of the burden, that's going to give um, the Biden administration some political slack in the US domestically. So I think that that's important. But again, it comes down to buying time for the people themselves, the Iraqi people and the Afghan people to gradually take control of their affairs. I mean, 
you know, and, and unless they do, there's not much outside powers can do in the end. Sir William Patey, thank you for your time. Good to talk to you today. While debate continues over Afghanistan, the United States and Iran seem locked in the diplomatic equivalent of a staring contest, waiting to see who blinks first in the push to revive the stalled nuclear deal. The US says it's willing to re-enter the deal abandoned by Donald Trump, but only if Iran scales back uranium enrichment. Iran, in turn, says it won't do that until the US lifts sanctions. Well, America's new Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says the US and European powers must speak with one voice. We have a policy in recent years of so-called maximum pressure on Iran that has not produced results. In fact, the problem has gotten worse. Iran is now much closer to being able to produce on short order enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Our leverage has now increased because we're now, once again, on the same page with our European partners. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, the US is back in the room on Iran, but demanding Tehran make the first move. Iran agreed a three-month extension for UN inspectors, but three months from now seems to be Tehran's deadline for progress. Yes, the, the Iranians um, are fairly clear that they, they want some sort of reward for letting this whole process begin again, because they say, look, you know, you can't, you, the Americans, you can't just leave the process and then come back and expect everything to be unchanged. So there won't be any no conditions return to the whole deal. Um, and in a way that suits the United States because the US wants to take up some bigger issues, the sort of things that the Trump administration raised. I don't think there's there's not a great deal of, of difference between what Biden and, and what Trump wanted out of Iran, but the difference, of course, is the way they go about it. And so, I, and I think there are some other factors here. We've got to really wait until the, the Iranian elections have been held in June before before it'll be fairly clear um, what their position is, but it won't be the old position. So in a way, it's a it's a new set of negotiations that have now got to begin. Yeah, and because of that election, how much power does Hassan Rouhani have to make long-term commitments and to negotiate? Not very much at the moment. That's the that's the point, and we we will all be waiting to see how he emerges and people his backers emerge from these elections. It's quite possible that because of the maximum pressure that the Trump administration put on Iran, that the Iranians themselves will go towards the more hardline theocratic parties or theocratic elements. That's entirely possible, but we'll have to see. But the, the, the good thing in this also, from the West's point of view, is although nothing much will happen until the second half of this year, the American team are all focused on Iran. I mean, Tony Blinken, who we heard from a moment ago, you know, he's an old Iran hand. I mean, so is Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. John Kerry is back in the administration now. He negotiated the original deal and Lloyd Austin, the Defence Secretary. All these people know their way around the Iran issue so that we've now got a bunch of, of, of hard-bitten professionals dealing with Iran, whereas President Trump and Mike Pompeo, to be honest, knew very, very little about it, even though they exerted all this maximum pressure. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic that things will improve on this front, also because the Iranians are losing influence elsewhere. So they, in the long term, will have an incentive to get back into some sort of deal. But it won't be quick, it won't be soon. This is Sitrap.
Now, it won't be long now until we find out exactly what's in the integrated review of defence, security and foreign policy. Boris Johnson confirmed to G7 leaders last week that it will be published next month. And that's triggered a last-minute flurry of lobbying. It's widely expected the review will signal a big shift from sheer numbers in the military to greater use of cyber and other technological advances. But four former military leaders spoke out this week, warning an army of just 72,000 would harm Britain's position in the world. Among them is Major General Tim Cross, who led British forces in Iraq. One of the key dates for me was 2006, when we found ourselves in a position that we could not sustain proper operations in Iraq and proper operations in Afghanistan. We did not have enough mass to be able to do both of these operations at the same time. Clearly, if we cut the size of the army by another 10,000 or so, we will find ourselves with a limited ability to respond to events. That's what the government wants to do. That's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, they're there to make these choices. But let's not convince ourselves that a global Britain wanting to influence events around the world uh, is going to do that if we're not prepared to, to keep the size and shape of the military in terms of hard power that we would, we would wish to you know, be able to use. Major General Tim Cross there. Well, another report this week suggested the MOD is going to scrap the Warrior Armoured Personnel Carrier, upgrade some Challenger 2 tanks, but scrap others. An idea that worries Tobias Elwood, Chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee. We're starting to see bits of jigsaw fall out of the MOD and Whitehall, giving an indication as to what will be contained in the integrated review. My concern is that we actually don't know that fundamental question about what our armed forces are expected to do on the international stage and meeting uh, new and uh, emerging threats. So scrapping the warrior program completely and reducing our tanks by 150 has taken everybody by surprise because we don't know where we might be utilising our land forces. Having said that, 150 Challenger 2 tanks will be upgraded, although 77 will be scrapped. And um, can, can that not be mitigated also by bringing the boxer armoured personnel carriers into service early, as the Defence Secretary wants to do? But let's look into the detail of that. If you have 150 Challenger tanks, they need to be supported. And they need to be supported by armoured fighting vehicles. That means something with a cannon on top, at least a 30 or 40 millimeter. We don't have anything. If you take Warrior out of that, it's a bit like sending the Lancaster bombers out uh, without Spitfires or Hurricanes. Ultimately, if you're going to keep your main battle tank, it needs to be supported. Otherwise, you may well scrap it as well. These kind of leaks often come out ahead of a review to test the water. What's your argument and what alternative would you offer in this context if the army is to find efficiency savings? Well, the first thing is, is to make sure that you make clear what you want to do. What's missing in action here is the integrated review. You give clarity about what we want to do in the world. The MOD has a better understanding as to what kits to purchase. Instead, it's the other way around. A little bit of money has been thrown at the MOD. They're starting to spend it but they've not been told where or how. You could be bold and take the big plunge and be that first advanced nation to drop the tank completely and move to a more agile uh, force with striker brigades uh, and say that we're not going to do the tanks. We will mitigate that by working with drones or other capabilities uh, as well. Instead, we have this botched approach of keeping the tanks but getting rid of the tank support. 
We're not involved in something as big as Afghanistan or Iraq, but we could easily end up sending a stabilization capability, for example, if a peace agreement was achieved in Yemen. We wouldn't be able to do that because our armed forces are now so small. And the value that we add to the United States, to NATO, is partly because of our size. The ability for us to speak with authority on the international stage comes from our hard power. You diminish that continuously, eventually we'll be overtaken and our voice will be diminished as well. On the other side of the things, in terms of a vision, it does seem that the integrated review will want us to be a world-leading power on cyber and new tech. Um, is the price of that the fact that, in terms of numbers, we just can't be what we were? I think you put your finger on it there. You know, this was billed as the most radical re-evaluation of Britain's place in the world since the Cold War. And the government has been congratulated for leading into our uh, cyber and space capabilities. We're ever more reliant on the movement of data and uh, the way that you can actually infiltrate and affect Britain, not directly through military means anymore, but direct to society uh, through uh, things like uh, cyber hacks and so forth. It's quite right that we invest in those capabilities, but not to the detriment of our conventional forces. Otherwise, we actually rule ourselves out in responding to, let's say, Russian aggression or helping provide security in the Sahel or stability in the Middle East. If all of these speculative reports turn out to be true, how do you think the UK will be viewed by the US and other allies? Well, I think it'll diminish this claim to be, you know, the global Britain. And I, I, I worry in the, the year where we have such an opportunity to make our mark, uh, let's be frank, we've been distracted over the last few years because of Brexit and so forth. The West has become a little risk averse. You now have an occupant in the White House and uh, President uh, Biden uh, wanting to regroup Western resolve and determination to stand up to the diverse growing threats around us. I want Britain to be part of that. That's actually why I got into politics. It's why I served in, in the armed forces in the first place. So I think there's an opportunity that needs to be grasped. We need to convince the Treasury that uh, if we want to have those forces available, a little bit more money needs to be coming forth. Tobias Elwood talking to me earlier. Well, let's pick that up with Professor Michael Clark. A little earlier, we were talking about the idea that, if anything, we ought to be sending more international troops to Afghanistan. According to Tim Cross, who we heard from, and Tobias Elwood, that's something that might not even be possible in future. No, that's right. I mean, I think Tobias, I mean, is quite right that mass matters. They say, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. And even though the world is moving on in technological terms, and you've got to stay up with that, the fact is that the, old, the famous boots on the ground, the, 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 the ability to have numbers, to have people in uniform doing what you want them to do is really quite important. And as, as Tim Cross said, I mean, we, we could not sustain two medium-sized commitments in Iraq and Afghanistan simultaneously. And now it will be difficult, uh, you know, to sustain one medium-sized commitment over a long period. So there's no question that we've ratcheted down in our ability to do things in the world. And what we're facing, of course, is this choice that the army's try been trying to put off for years as to whether it's a multi-purpose army able to do lots of different things in the way that Tobias said we should, or whether it goes down to its essential strategic purpose, which basically is to run one full modern combat division. 
And that's the direction we're going in. We're going to field one really ultra-modern combat division. That's a lot of eggs in that basket, so it's got to be good. And we'll see in the coming years whether that uh, works its way through properly, whether we can make that work. But it is a choice. So, you know, we are being, as it were, hassled by our own economics into a strategic choice which the army has tried not to make for quite some time. Michael Clark, stay with us. Well, the Welsh Cavalry are preparing to join the most dangerous UN operation anywhere in the world. A squadron from first the Queen's Dragoon Guards will head to Mali later this year and before joining the peacekeeping operation there, they've been training in Cyprus. Our reporter Sean Greszczek has had a look behind the scenes. We have enemy uh, directly to our east. Preparing to join the most dangerous United Nations operation in the world. Pass the message, get him moving. I need to continue to press from your location where you watch the 1 2 Bravo call signs. The Welsh cavalry will be in Mali by the end of the year. They've come to Cyprus to train. First, the Queen's Dragoon Guards will be with more than 12,000 UN peacekeeping troops, protecting civilians and trying to bring stability to the country. Officer commanding A Squadron is Major James Curry. The QGG Battle Group will form the Long Range Reconnaissance Group. So we'll be going out on patrols of up to about 30 days at a time. And what we'll be doing is operating across the entirety uh, of Mali. Uh, we'll be a mixture of kind of understanding so we can inform uh, the United Nations on what needs to happen and where, but simultaneously providing security to the local nationals, uh, helping to develop the Malinese army. Uh, and generally what we're trying to do is set the conditions for a safe and stable environment. Mali is in West Africa and is a country roughly the combined size of France, Germany and the UK. The UN operation began back in 2013 after terrorist groups took control of major towns in the country's north the year before. Since then, the mission has suffered 231 fatalities, of which 134 were the result of malicious acts. 358 personnel have sustained serious injuries. Our role of understanding all those different frictions that appear across the country and the various different problem sets that the Malinese government face is going to be very tricky. In January 2021, four UN peacekeepers were killed and five others wounded in an attack by unidentified armed elements after their convoy was struck by an improvised explosive device in the Timbuktu region. One of the most experienced soldiers here is Sergeant Hatton. He's been in the army for more than 16 years, having served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and is passing on his wisdom to younger members of the squadron. So it's perfect environment to work on the heat and work in the arid environments. How's it all going overall? Uh, it's tough. It's hot. It's, everything's sharp, it's hot, it's frustrating, there's a lot of rage and temper, but it's good for the firefight. How are you feeling ahead of Marley now? Uh, confident. We'll extract a casualty to you over. Stand by for mist. Sergeant Hatton signals that it's safe for them to land. They have to get the simulated casualty evacuated as smoothly and efficiently as possible. Casivac, they're on time for the helicopter. Got a casualty out. I think it's seven minutes. So from body wounding to casualty extraction is about seven minutes. First time my dad's ever seen a helicopter doing a casivac at the same time. Uh, it's good training for them. Um, pretty chuffed. There's a few work on points, but we'll definitely iron that out. 
future. Operating under the United Nations, it's very clear what we're there to do. Major James Curry. We're not there to kind of bring about substantial change. We're there for peacekeeping uh, to support to support the locals. And we're working unlike in previous uh, operations uh, where in Helmand Province we were operating in a British sector, British alone. We'll be working alongside a whole host of not only other nations supporting the United Nations, but a whole load of UN actors. Their training for Mali continues apace. They're about to head to Louisiana for exercise Rattlesnake, the US Army's second largest exercise of the year. Sean Greshchak with that report. Finally today, the confirmation that the Duke of Sussex will not be returning to full-time royal duties leaves a few gaps in the roster of honorary military titles. Prince Harry had hoped to retain those roles despite abandoning his life as a working member of the royal family and moving to California. The Queen said no, and former Chief of the General Staff Lord Dannett says having titles like Captain General of the Royal Marines taken away will hurt Harry. To give those up will be painful for him because he will have known how important they are for soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines, and that he will no longer be there to be not just their figurehead, but their leader, their example and their inspiration. And that's tough. Michael Clark, um, so applications are open for the honorary role of Captain General of the Royal Marines. Who qualifies? You know, you have to think about Prince Edward because remember that the royals have lost three principal figures in the last two years. They've lost Andrew for political reasons, Harry and Meghan. Those, those three younger generation principals were critical to the planning of the royals for the next era. And that devolves much more responsibility on William and Kate and Edward and Sophie Wessex. So I would not at all be surprised to see Edward uh, stepping up to be uh, the new um, head of the Marines, Captain General. And would he be welcomed, do you think? I think he would, yes. I mean, the, the, all of the forces want a royal patronage. I mean, Princess Anne does a great deal, but there's only so much she can do. And the, the whole tenor of royal politics at the moment is to devolve upon the younger generation of royals, the, the new principles, the responsibilities that they'll have to take forward with the Commonwealth and the union of the United Kingdom um, when we no longer have the Queen uh, with us. So to lose Harry and Meghan and Andrew all in a short space of time is quite a blow and is taking a fair bit of reorganisation uh, within royal circles. Mm, perhaps we need honorary roles in the royal family, as it were. <laughs> yes, it's, it's the great soap opera that the world watches. I mean, sometimes it seems very... Uh, depressing in some ways. In other ways, you think, well, the fact that the world is so interested is a good thing. It, on American television, whenever they say the royal family, they only ever mean the British royal family. There's, there's about 15 different royal families around the world. But whenever a CNN news anchor says news from the royal family, they only ever mean the British royal family. Mm, of course. Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time and to all of our guests as well. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. In a brand new original BFBS podcast. Tonight, the battle has been joined. Decision makers. The Gulf War was very much the first televised war. Military commanders. There we were witnessing that. And ordinary soldiers, sailors and airmen. At night, you could hear the firing from the American Navy using their cruise missiles and the battleship shelling the Iraqi forces ashore. Hear the story 
of the 1991 Gulf War. The conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact. When you're trying to maintain infection control, it's really, really challenging. Told by those who were there. Well, I found it most terrifying when we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, I might not come back. Granby, the storm in the desert. Wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.